0: Our holy God invites us to hear his word and to know how he makes us holy. And so I invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read that in a second. Um, I did want to just take a minute and uh, remind you that next Sunday is our anniversary Sunday. It's our twenty-first anniversary. Um, I guess we're all grown up now, uh, and we're going to just be gathering next Sunday night at six thirty for what we're calling a tab story night, and we'll we'll wrap that up with some dessert in the fellowship hall afterwards. So please bring a, a dessert to share, and and come and hear stories about how Tabernacle got here. I, I know. The majority of of you in this room, and, and even watching from home, like you've uh, become part of the Tabernacle family. Maybe in the past five years, maybe even the past ten years, or or, or even more recently. Uh, but but fewer of us, you know, remember the the first decade. Uh, few, very few of us remember starting and planting Tabernacle. Um, few fewer of us remember planting Holy Cross, and so we want to. Uh, like any, any good, healthy family, when you get together and you share stories, you know, tell me about the time when Uncle Fred hit his head on the monkey bars. I'm, I don't know, I'm just riffing. Um, but, you know, you just kind of laugh and, and, and you reminisce and, it's, and, it, and it helps cement and, and bond you together better. So we want to uh, do that and celebrate God's faithfulness. This upcoming Sunday night, not tonight, but next Sunday night at 630 uh, we're gonna have a time of, of worship and some stories here in the sanctuary and then bring a dessert to share and we'll, we'll enjoy dessert downstairs after that. Okay, uh, Jesus is greater. Uh, this is our, our Hebrew series. Last week, we were talking about how uh, Jesus has uh, a greater glory because uh, as, as glorious as God is, as our creator And as our uh, keeper, you know, he sustains all things and and holds us all together, uh, as as great as he is and as much glory as he deserves on high, he gets even more glory because, not just because he's exalted, but because he endured uh, the the humility of the incarnation. Uh, His feet got dirty, his feet got bloody, for us. And he deserves even more glory because of the glory of his mercy, the the glory of his kindness, the glory of his forgiveness, the glory of his justice. And and all of that is why we bow at his nail-scarred feet, right? Well, this morning we want to sort of continue uh, the, the, the writer's comments about glory and God sharing, Jesus sharing his glory with us. But he does that because he's, he, he's our greater helper. He's not just our, our, our great keeper. He's also our great helper. Uh, so, you know, you've been standing. Just sit tight. and I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. If you've got your Bibles open, I'm in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom, by whom all things exist, And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again... were kept subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. for. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your, your word, the revelation of Jesus to us, our greater helper, the one who is our our priest, our our brother, our deliverer, and we pray that you would help us to see him more clearly now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> um, there's uh, a, a lot here. Obviously, I want to just focus on Jesus as our brother. Jesus is our deliverer, and and then ultimately, uh, Jesus as our our greater helper. And and so let's. Let's look at verse 10 and something kind of um, kind of curious, kind of, sort, of, sort of interesting, maybe it raises your eyebrows if, if you were listening carefully. And it just, uh, the writer's saying that Jesus, you know, in bringing many sons to glory, that, that God made the foundation, founder of, of our salvation perfect through suffering. Um, it says that Jesus was perfected through his suffering. What So so let's pause right there and just go, well, what does that mean? Because I I thought Jesus was perfect. Um, You know, I thought Jesus was the one who said, can any of you find any fault with me? And, you know, of course, none of his detractors could. Uh, He's sinless. And that's what entitles him and and qualifies him to be our perfect human representative. So he's, he's perfect. So why is Hebrews saying that? he had to be perfected. Well, it doesn't mean that he had any deficits. It doesn't mean that that he had flaws that needed improving. Rather, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus had a mission that he had to accomplish. He had an unfulfilled purpose that without finishing it would not be perfected. So that purpose would not be complete until he perfected his mission to provide a full and complete salvation for us. Um, And that full and complete salvation is not simply, as, as we're reading here in verse 10, Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins. He saves us to join him in glory. And that's really important to keep both of those in mind. Um, If if you've been in church for any length of time, we sort of get accustomed, we have our our shorthand, um, kind of our tribal speak when we talk about Jesus as our savior, and we talk about salvation. Our our truncated way of expressing it is Jesus saves us from our sins. Amen. God saves sinners. However, uh, we, we need a more macro picture, uh, you know, we, we need the full understanding of what that salvation is. He doesn't just save us from our sins, he also saves us unto glory. And, and that's what verse 10, you know, and other places tell us, that Jesus is bringing, the Father, through Jesus, is bringing many sons, many daughters to glory, uh, it's what Paul basically says in Ephesians 2. Listen to how Paul describes the, the salvation we have through Jesus. Uh, he says that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you've been saved, right? We've been saved from our sins through what Christ did and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's bringing many sons and daughters to glory, you know, because of the salvation that Jesus perfected, you know, completing his mission. He was perfected through his suffering. And so are we. We are perfected through his suffering. His His suffering for our sins enables us to escape our suffering because of our sins. Those who who repent and believe in Jesus and turn to him in, in, in faithful obedience and discipleship and following him, we are with him raised up in glory. The saints have always put their trust in this. This isn't novel, it's not new, it's not just New Testament stuff either. The Old Testament was explaining this is God's salvation. When um, gosh, you can go all the way back to to First Samuel. Uh, Hannah is praying and she's uh, without child, and so she's you know asking God, really begging God, and fasting and pleading, and she's in the temple night and day praying for God to give her a child. She she gives she has a child. She gives birth to, to Samuel. I said Eli in the first service. Anyway, uh, she has she gives birth to Samuel, and then she prays and she says. Uh, that God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. She's describing God's grace to her, that she would receive honor, that she would have this, this glory that, that she's been praying for. And, and so salvation isn't just simply like, okay, you're, you're forgiven of your sins. No, it's also sharing in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their glory, being embraced and invited into that circle, right? Um, We are on the receiving end of that magnitude of blessing because Jesus, our brother, shares our flesh and blood. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he quotes Psalm 22 here, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And jump down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Um, Verse 11 says that, that that he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those he's being who are being sanctified, that's us. We all have one source. We have the same Father. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. He's the eternally begotten Son. He's the uncreated Son, infinitely existing with the Father and the Spirit, you know, from before there was an even time. And Yet, at the same time, we are included in this family, not because we're eternally begotten, but because we're adopted into this family. That we are blessed to be called sons and daughters. Furthermore, Jesus shares our flesh and blood. He became like us. He became truly human took on our flesh and blood to become like us so that we might become like him. We might be joined into the family of God. We might be remade, recreated so that we truly do bear that renewed likeness. We become like God, the way God designed Adam and Eve in the first place. So, So this is God's purpose through this new humanity that's being constituted through the gospel. He became like us so that we could become like him. And the implication in in this, in Hebrews chapter 2, is just, it's kind of stunning. In verse 11, we're told that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Why is that? Why is Jesus not ashamed of, of us? Like... Did you ever have a little brother or a little sister who would follow you around and want to get in your business and play with your friends and, you know, play with your stuff? And and that kid was a constant embarrassment to you. You just wanted nothing more than to be an only child, right? Some of you older siblings understand and younger siblings are like, uh. Jesus isn't that big brother who's ashamed of us. He's not annoyed with us. He's not looking to get rid of us. Why? Why is he not ashamed of us? Well, there may be some assumptions here that, that, that could, could be challenged, could be corrected. And among those, you know, we might be inclined to think, well, he's not ashamed of us because he really doesn't have any opinion about our behaviors. That would not be true. Or we might think, you know, he's not ashamed of us because he's indifferent about the choices that we make. And that would not be true either. He cares a lot about the choices that we make. Somebody might imagine he's not ashamed of us because Jesus sort of thinks those shameful things are neutral. Maybe there's no black or white, there's no right or wrong, there's no absolute truth. That's not true either. So, why exactly is Jesus not ashamed of me, of you? Well, verse 11 tells us, he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. So Jesus is sanctifying us, and we are being sanctified, meaning that Jesus bore our shame on the cross and removed it as far as the east is from the west. I'm sorry, is the, the east is from the west. Removed it, you know, you can't name it anymore. It's been thrown into the deepest ocean so that God does not look at us as sinful anymore. He doesn't regard us in light of our sin. This is what the theologians talk about, sanctification in the past and in the present and in the future. So what our past sanctification means is that Jesus, through his bearing our shame on the cross, he takes our sins away. That means that we are set apart, uh, you know, we we picture that through baptism, we are made new creations, we're made holy, God regards us as holy. That means we're positionally sanctified in heaven, God doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus and that's what sanctifies us. And in the present tense, as new creations, we're given new desires, new appetites, you know, Um, Taylor was talking about this downstairs in the the James class this morning, Um, that we are are being changed right now so that morally, um, so that we we are progressively being sanctified and becoming more and more how God sees us in light of Jesus. So that where I am right now and where I will be in glory, my, my hope as a disciple, my hope for all of us as a community of disciples is that We are trying to close that gap, that sanctification gap between who I am now and who I will be one day in the future when we will be perfectly sanctified. So there's positional sanctification, how God sees us right now in Christ. There's our progressive sanctification like discipleship and saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. And then perfect sanctification in glory in that circle. With the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoying that that beauty and that glory. That's why He's not ashamed of us. He's not regarding us in light of our sins, He's regarding us in light of His work, His grace, His beauty, His righteousness. So here's a um, maybe a practical example of, of why how He's not ashamed of us. So uh, in, verse, in verse 12, Hebrews The author does it again, right? He he keeps, keeps pointing us back to the foundation. He keeps pointing us back to the Old Testament. This time, Psalm 22, we did it for our call to worship. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, right? The implication here is that Jesus is the one who is leading us in worship. When we gather together for corporate worship, um, something very, very special happens and we don't always see it. We don't, you know, we can't see what's invisible, but the eyes of faith can. And what scripture tells us is that when we gather, we're not just simply gathering as Tabernacle Presbyterian, even though it's wonderful and it's beautiful when we do, we're also gathering with all the other churches here in Waynesboro all the other churches in Augusta County, all the other churches in Virginia, all the other churches in our country, all the other churches around the world who are our brothers and sisters singing praise to our Father in heaven, brothers and sisters praising our Father. More than that, we're not just connected horizontally, we're connected vertically. Because in addition to all the saints all over the earth, praising our Father in heaven together, we're united with the saints who've gone before us, surrounding the throne, praising the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know who's leading all of this praise for our heavenly Father? Jesus is leading us in singing praise to God. So, let me just give you a little little uh, taste of what's going to happen next Sunday night. I'm going to give you a free free like preview story. Um, we've had a number of worship leaders in Tab's history. Our very first worship leader when we started, you know, in this little chapel, you know, that used to be our, our sanctuary through those doors, uh, was a guy named Jason McCall, and uh, he he was our first worship director, and then uh, he went with everybody over to plant. Uh, Holy Cross in Stanton. After Jason McCall, we hired Rick Gilmartin. And uh, he was our worship pastor. And then he also left Tabernacle to pastor uh, Holy Cross. And after uh, Rick Gilmartin uh, was John Benich. And John Benich left Tabernacle. He sort of semi-retired and, and helped start a church in McGackiesville. And then after John Benich, our own Karen Palumbo was, was directing worship. And she left this position for the sake of her sanity. Uh, she needed a full-time job, uh, and, and she's directing music at uh, Grace Christian. You, you go check out um, uh, Mary Poppins that uh, she's leading music for. And then uh, we hired Taylor McPherson. Like, um, thank, thank the Lord for, for Taylor. You're, you're a great gift to us. Um, so listen, here's the thing that I keep hearing I've, that I've heard over the years from our different worship directors. You know, they, 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 they do a fantastic job you know, on their guitar and behind the mic and so on. And, and what they have each said to me over the years is, you know what, Tabernacle is a singing church. You guys sing well. I mean, just consistently, I, I, I keep hearing it, and they will talk about how from time to time, they'll just stop leading the singing and just listen to you all. The, the, the We call it the wall of sound that's coming at this stage and the people up here and, and how much, uh, how much it's, it blesses them to hear the saints singing. Uh, it's actually not a common thing. Like a lot of churches are content, right, to just let the, let the choir do the singing. We'll listen to the choir. Or let the praise band rock it out, you know, and we'll let them do the singing. But the fact that you all sing is, is terrific. It's a blessing. I was having a conversation with Taylor about this last week. And he was talking about the wall of sound, how he likes to just sometimes just stop and listen. And then, you, know, you know what he said to me next? I said, last Sunday, I could hear you on the front row in the first service. I could hear you. And, and how do you think I responded? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> how would you respond if, 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 if people could hear you sing? You know, like we kind of get lost in, the, in, in the, the group voice, right? But, but what, if, what if we singled you out? What if we called you, hey, come on up here and stand right here and get behind this mic and lead us all in singing praise to our Father in heaven? How would you do? Why do we, why do we shrink back from that? Why, why do we, we kind of inwardly cringe? At the, at the thought of people hearing our voice, right? To do a little karaoke on Sunday. Like, just, ugh. Because we're ashamed. Because we're ashamed of how we think we might sound. Can I tell you something that might unsettle you right now? Jesus hears Every single one of you as if you were singing a love song solo to him. Loud and clear. He doesn't care if you're flat or sharp. He doesn't care if you sound like a frog or a screech owl. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you. He loves your heart coming to him in praise for what he's done to save us. He loves leading you in praise to our Father together because he has shared his flesh and he shares our flesh and blood. And he's not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to call you his sister. No no matter how well or not so well you sing, right? So apply that across the board. Apply that to you. He's not ashamed of how you work. He's not ashamed of how you study. He's not ashamed of how you play. He's just happy that you're doing it with him. He, he enjoys the relationship with you. He loves having you as his brother. He loves having you as his sister. And this one who has given himself and shared our flesh and blood and is not ashamed of us because he has covered our sins and has made us righteous in his sight, he is also the one who has who has delivered us from our common enemy, death. Look at verse 14. He himself likewise partook of the same blessings, I'm sorry, the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Um, what's kind of interesting and, and, and um glorious uh, in, in this is that Jesus comes to destroy the destroyer. In in Revelation, John's given a vision, lots of visions, right? Uh, one of the visions is in chapter 9 where uh, he sees the world in all of its uh, wickedness and the ruler of the world, the, the wicked rulers of the world. And, um, and we're told in chapter 9, that they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon, uh, where Apollyon means the destroyer. So Jesus, in verse 14, we're told that through death he came to destroy the destroyer. He came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Um, John Bunyan was a a Puritan pastor and was was put in jail for years uh, for preaching the gospel. And while he was in jail, he wrote a a book that many of you I know are familiar with called Pilgrim's Progress. If you're new to the church or new to Christian stuff, Pilgrim's Progress is this really cool allegory told in sort of like Shakespearean English uh, and I want to read to you th- this this place where the the main character, christian, who be- who becomes a Christian, right? and And Bunyan has this parable basically of Christian traveling from the city of destruction to Zion. Uh, and And his encounters along the way telling this sort of allegory of of what the Christian life looks like. and I'll pick up where where Christian meets Apollyon, the destroyer. Poor Christian was hard put to it for he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend. (laughs) You like that language, right? Uh, Coming over the field to meet with him and his name was Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. And therefore, he resolved to venture and stand his ground. Christian is going to grapple with Apollyon. So he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish. Actually, look at the front of your bulletin. Super scary bulletin for you today, right? Uh, this is... Uh, William Blake watercolor, it's cool in color by the way, Um, but there's a picture of Christian battling Apollyon. Um, He was clothed with scales like a fish, they are are his pride is what uh, Bunyan parenthetically inserts. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. When he was come up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance, and thus began to question him, whence come you, and whither are you bound? And Christian replied, I come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil, and I am going to the city of Zion. All right, so Bunyan then finishes this account with, you know, Christian and Apollyon uh, having this wrestling match, and and, and Apollyon seems to be getting the upper hand with his flaming darts, right? Uh, and Christian's doing his best. He's got his shield of faith. He's got the sword of the Spirit. He's got his breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation on. Look, it's this allegory of the armor of God. And finally, with the, the sword of the Spirit, gives uh, Apollyon a poke, and Apollyon flees. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, you know, this is, it's, it's a great allegory talking about the armor of God, which is why Christian couldn't turn his back. He only had a breastplate on. He didn't have anything on his back. But that armor wouldn't do any good without somebody. The, the, the armor of God is no good without God. And the, the real protection, our, our real deliverance comes from our deliverer, uh, the one who has the power and the strength to destroy the destroyer. And this is what Jesus has done for us. This is this really interesting conversation that Jesus had with his detractors one time. And they were saying, look, you know, all these sort of parlor tricks, all these uh, demons that you're exercising, you know, all of that. that you, you don't, we know how you're doing that. You are in league with the devil. That's where you're getting your power. But can you imagine? I mean... It's, it's, it's complete folly and foolishness, but there's a little bit of courage that I actually admire. Like, can you imagine saying that to Jesus? And Jesus replied, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger Then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil, meaning Jesus is the one who is the stronger one. And he's taking away the power and the strength of Satan. Um, Later on in Revelation, John even sees Satan thrown into the the burning lake of of fire along with the serpent and the false prophet and so on because that is Satan's doom forever. Jesus will destroy the destroyer, and that's how he helps us. He delivers us from death. Verse 15, he's delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, maybe the phrase, lifelong slavery to the fear of death, is something some of you experience right now in in the present tense, but... um, I'll go out on a limb and just say, I don't know that that's everybody here's current experience. I think ultimately, yeah, we all face that. We all will face that. But most of us do a pretty good job actually kind of keeping the fear of death at arm's length. And, and we've done that systemically. We've done that as a culture. Like people don't die in our homes anymore. We, we send them to hospitals. We send them to you know, places that we don't have to kind of deal with the, the reality of death. The only place we see it is are places where we get a little bit immune to it, you know, the news or the movies. Speaking of which, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, you know, Davy Jones, he's got this crew that they've pulled out of the ocean. They're on the silent Mary, and he's going up to all the crew members asking them, do you fear death? The dark abyss. all your sins laid bare, all your deeds punished. The crew cowers at the thought of death. There's one sailor, and he's wearing a cross. And he tells Davy Jones, I'll take my chances. And he goes overboard. I don't know if the producers of Pirates of the Caribbean were given an amen to Jesus at that moment, but it wasn't lost on me. Jesus has taken away the fear of death. He's delivered us from it. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Contrary to sort of our our way of talking about it, you know, it's something that's natural. It's just this sort of circle of life and we romanticize it. It is an intruder. And death is not welcome in God's kingdom. Jesus came to destroy death. And there's a day coming when death will be no more, when God swallows up death forever forever. Uh, Let me read a couple of verses from this incredible picture in Isaiah 25. The mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces for the Lord has spoken. You have a graveside service and you stand around that hole and you put that casket in, you lay that body in the earth and you put the earth back over the body. It it looks like the earth is just swallowing you back up. And the gospel says that God is going to swallow the swallower. He's going to destroy the destroyer. And Jesus accomplished this by enduring death in order to destroy death. This is how he's helped us. This is how he's helped all the saints who have gone before us. In verse 16, surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, um, now listen, don't, don't get the wrong impression. Jesus doesn't have, he's not, he's uh, not, he doesn't have anything against the angels. He's not like he's, oh, I'm not going to help them. They just don't die. <laughs> they don't, they're not afraid of death because they're not, they're not subject to death. He's not, he's not helping them. He's helping us because we do die. We are afraid of death. We were looking last week at Jesus as our keeper. And in Psalm 121, he, he will keep you from all harm. He will keep your going out, your coming forth. Uh, and and so on. But the psalm begins with how we lift our eyes to the hills where our help comes from. Our our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is our ezer. By his help, we we have come thus far. Um, And and it's not, you need to understand the significance that that God made Adam as a keeper, you know, sort of in, in his unique way, a representative of God as the keeper. And then he makes Eve as Adam's helper, not to be his lackey or his, his you know, servant, to be God's image bearer as Israel's helper, their, their, their strong champion, the one who's gonna come to their aid and rescue them and help them complete this, this kingdom building process and so on. So God is Israel's help and he's our help too. And we don't have a clearer picture of God as our helper apart from Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, You know, back in, when I was mentioning Hannah and, and, and her praying for a son, and God blesses her with Samuel, and then God speaks to Eli, the high priest, regarding his sons who were priests, and they were, they were doing a terrible job. And God says, I'm going I'm to change the priesthood, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. He's talking about Jesus, a faithful priest, a merciful and faithful high priest. And what's this merciful and faithful high priest's job? He's able to help those who are being tempted. Helping us is what is in God's heart and in his mind. He is intentional it is not an accident. Like sometimes we stop to help people. We're on our way to point A, and we see somebody with a flat tire, and we go, oh, you know, I got a little bit of time. I might be late, but, you know, out of, my, out of, out of the kindness of my heart, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to help fix a flat tire or whatever, right? But that's sort of accidental. You, you weren't intentional on in that. It's almost a second thought. The other day, I, I was coming up 250 on, on my way to work, and I, I, I see uh, this guy who I used to sometimes give rides to. He worked at the Kroger that was, is now closed on Lou DeWitt, um, and it's now Ollie's, right? Well, because they closed that store, they, they put him at the downtown Waynes, uh, Waynesboro Kroger, and, uh, and so he gets, takes the bus there now, but he missed his bus, and I see him hoofing on 250, and I'm driving along, and, oh, there goes Irvin. And then I thought, maybe I, should, maybe, maybe I should turn around and get him. I bet he missed his bus. So, like, yeah, I turned around and pulled up and said, hey, Irvin, you need a ride. She's like, yeah, thanks. And so we, we caught up. It has been a couple of years since I've seen him. Well, is that how God helps us? Is, is, is the gospel an afterthought? Is God driving along and sees us in our sin, in our misery, helpless and, you know, without hope? And he's, you know, maybe, maybe I should go back. You know, oh, yeah, I'll make a U-turn and, and then, you know, forgive their sins and bring them to heaven. Why not? Out of the kindness of his heart. That's, that's not at all what's going on here. God, this this priest will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. God is intentionally kind. He wasn't on his way to someplace else and then you know decided he would he would throw us a bone. The gospel is his purposeful mission to come and save a people and bring us as his sons and daughters into his family from the foundation of the world. This was his intention: to be kind, to be gracious. This was on his heart and on his mind. And so when you look at, you know, $5 words in, 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 the, in the Bible, words like in, in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that was his purpose. What does propitiation mean? Well, technically it means to turn somebody's anger away. We've all heard of the wrath of God, right? That's not just for old-fashioned religion. Like sin makes us angry. When somebody sins against you, it makes you angry. And our sin against God makes Him angry too. What, what the gospel means is that it was on God's heart and on his mind to forgive us. To give us a substitute. To give us Jesus. To, to, to share glory with us, which is the opposite of shame. So propitiation means that God is inclined toward us. And he loves us. And he's for us. And he's pursuing us. Actually, last week we were talking about God sharing his glory with us, right? Glory is the opposite of shame. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. Shame says you're trash. Glory says you're treasure. Shame says you're condemned. Glory says you're commended. Shame says you're rejected. And glory says you are welcome. Come on in. And this is what the cross means for us. God is not ashamed of us. He's merciful to us. He helps us even when we are being tempted. Shame makes us want to run from God. I don't want him to see me, you know, wrestling with this, struggling with this. But the gospel would cause us to go to Jesus, run to him, because he's not ashamed of us. He will embrace us. Let me close with these words from Richard Baxter. He wrote a book about heaven called The Saint's Everlasting Rest, and he says, is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God? To be the son, the spouse, the love, the delight of the king of glory. Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of love that was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting of the love which brought God's brought the son of God's love from heaven to earth from the earth to the cross from the cross to the grave and from the grave to glory that love will eternally embrace you there's glory in that let me pray Lord we give you thanks and praise for Jesus our brother our deliverer, our helper. We pray that you would help us to to regard his love as greater and greater as we grow in our understanding of the gospel. That it would not be a small thing to us to be loved by love everlasting, to be accepted into uh, your family. And Lord, would you cover our shame? Would you remind us that our shame is covered? Uh, Would you remind us that Jesus takes our sins away and gives us his status? Lord, would you do this for all of us? Would you give us grace in our temptations to not run away from Jesus but run toward him in confidence? Lord, would you give us comfort in the face of death? And we thank you for your mercy and the grace that you give us. And extending eternal life to your people, and we pray these things for all of us, for our tabernacle family. But in particular, we want to remember a few. Of them.